Hello, I'm Friedel. And I'm Ander. And welcome to the latest Traveling to Radio Show today, coming to you from the shores of Piha Beach, just outside Auckland. It's a very atmospheric place. Yeah, it's probably not the best day for it, but uh, it's really nice. If you've never been to Piha Beach, or perhaps never to uh, New Zealand, it's probably one of the more dangerous beaches around. Apparently lots of people drown here, and uh, so we won't be going in the water, that's for sure. It's also far too cold to go in the water. Yeah, and a little bit blustery today. But it is beautiful to look at. Black sands and towering rocks and some nice break from packing up the bicycles for our next big adventure. Yeah, our next big adventure is getting on the plane and heading to North America. And for the first time in a very long time, it means we're going to really sort of be at home. We're going to be in a home culture that we should be more or less familiar with. I don't know, I have a feeling we're in for probably a dose of culture shock, even though North America is where we both grew up. Yeah, I think it's going to be a culture shock. It's quite different than what we're used to. If you've been reading our blog, you probably know that for the last few weeks or even few months, we've had this sense and the knowledge that we're getting steadily closer to home and as much as we've been seeing beautiful places in New Zealand and we're going to tell you all about that in a different show, in some ways we, our heart hasn't really been in it because we just keep on thinking that we're getting steadily closer to home and now what? Yeah, now what? For so many years, for three years almost, it's cycling has been our whole life and we really don't know what's in store or how we'll adjust or what will we do when we get home and we don't have to go anywhere the next day. What will we do? We just don't know. Maybe we will just hop on the bike again. I don't know. Will we? <laughs> Maybe we will. As you can tell, we're in a bit of a quandary and you've probably been reading that on our blog as well. Every day we come up with a different idea and different thoughts on what awaits us when we get home and what this journey towards home where every day we're very perceptibly getting closer to home what what that will be like this summer it's going to be a very interesting summer indeed and kind of in that same vein we decided to talk to someone who's a few months ahead of us on that yeah he's uh, landed six months ago he uh, has been on, he was on the road for a long time and it was interesting to talk to him yeah so we'd like you to meet rob we're just going to play the interview and let him tell you his story about going all around the world by bicycle and by skateboard. So we're introducing a new mode of transport. Now, of all the things we will do when we get home, I'm pretty sure a skateboard trip is not going to be in the works. <laughs> you never know. You just never know. Anyway, here's Rob telling us all about his trip and his thoughts on life and how long-term travel changes you. My name is Rob Thompson. I'm originally from, well, I'm from New Zealand, living in New Zealand now. And uh, from July 2006 until um, November 2008, I travelled around the world by bicycle and skateboard. I travelled half half of the distance, so 12,000 kilometres on a bicycle, from Japan to Switzerland, across Central Asia and Middle East to um, Europe. And then in Europe, I switched from two wheels to four wheels and carried on by skateboard. So longboard skateboard um, ended up travelling... Um, 13,000 kilometers on the skateboard across Europe, across the US and uh, across China. So in total about 25,000 kilometers, two and a half years. Now I'm back in relative normal society. (laughs) And readjusting a little bit, a little bit slowly I think. Yeah, yeah. We'll get on to that later but give us an idea of what was going through your mind as you were 
planning the trip and you made the decision to start out, why did you decide to leave normal society in the first place and mm. embark on your adventure? Well, I'd been working in Japan for three years before I started, and the idea to do a, an extended cycling trip happened towards the, the beginning of the third year that I was in Japan. The original plan was to uh, cycle from Japan to England and then fly home to New Zealand. So I was planning to go back to New Zealand anyway. From that idea, I left Japan with the intention just to cycle to England. But then towards the end of that, I got the idea that perhaps I might um, change to the skateboard and try something totally different. The motivation came, gosh, yeah, uh, adventure. Just pure, unadulterated adventure. There, there was no deeper longing really for me if we really take it back I think I decided that I'd do a, a cycle trip cycling the length of um, Japan before I went back to New Zealand and so this is going back to before I even decided to cycle to England basically the idea was that I'd cycle the length of Japan then fly home to New Zealand and think about what to do next with my life and I'd never cycled before like I'd never cycled toured before so looking at all these blogs about how to cycle tour I saw pictures of lone cyclists cycling down endless slithers slithers of blacktop these people camping in the middle of nowhere in these wide open steep and cycling over massive high road passes in central asia and i thought oh man i want to do that so really the the inspiration came from other people's blogs photos and stories that they posted on their blogs um, and that really gave me the i guess the motivation for or the, the spark for an adventure were you an adventurous person beforehand? Being a New Zealander, uh, were you the sort of <coughs> fellow that would go down to Queenstown and go bungee jumping every weekend? Or? No, we well, see not many people, not many New Zealanders bungee jump actually. Oh really? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you it's, just it's, save that for the silly tourist. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> I guess I was I was always somebody who liked doing missions. You know, doing having some kind of goal and and just going and doing it. I remember in even in high school and in university, mates and I would look at a map and choose a hill or a mountain and say let's go and climb that next weekend most of the time no track just um we'd drive along see the mountain there we go okay we'd, we'd pick a ridge and go and we just walk up it um so things like that um, i was always into i think for for this um for the cycling from japan to england really the timing was just perfect you know i i, I got that spark of an idea that i would cycle from japan to england and i weighed up the reasons why the, i guess I, I thought about the reasons people don't do these things uh, is because I don't have the time, they don't have the money. And a lot of people would say, oh yeah, if I had the time, if I had the money, I would do a big trip like that. And I realized that I had the time, didn't have much money, but I had what I figured um, would be enough to last me nine months, which was the original planned length of the journey. So I really had no excuse not to do it. So yeah, just jumped at it. And how did you find it when you actually got on the road? You said you started out, the, the initial spark was mm. the idea of seeking adventure. Yeah. For us, we've discovered that actually, maybe we shouldn't say this, but well, there's a lot of days that are quite boring, yes, really. Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, in in retrospect, um, I'd say it's twenty percent fun and eighty percent just really, really hard work. That low? I mean, that that's yes. actually quite depressing. I don't know if we would put it quite that mm -hmm. low. Just twenty percent. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially being on my own, I think there was a lot of hoping for good things. Always the anticipation that there was going to be something exciting something interesting the thing that kept me going was you'd look i'd look on a map and um even if i was feeling really low and thinking oh i can't be bothered carrying on i'd look at a map and think oh, i want to know what's down the road i want to see what's 
what's down there. I want to see what's over that pass. So anticipation was a big factor in keeping me going. Is that quite depressing when you look back on it and you think I went through all that work and time and energy and mm-hmm. I only got one out of five days that were sort of interesting? Yeah. Well, you know, what? I, I think it's a reflection of, of life, really. The reality is that life uh, is a lot of hard work and the times that are truly just amazing, fun, happy times are relatively low but that doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile. I learned so much and, uh, and met so many different people and, and was exposed to so many different ways of life that uh, even though it was hard work, it was definitely worth it. And what are some of your favorite memories? What are the ones that keep you going now when you're back um, into normal life? Just the joy of, of being on the road and being self-sufficient and self-reliant. In a way, like that, that, that was a thread of fun, I guess you can call it. I mean, there were some amazing times. Like, um, Give us uh, one truly adventurous moment that you did have. Okay, tr- truly adventurous moment. Um, <clears throat> there was a three-day period in Kyrgyzstan. Basically, uh, um, it was my um, ethos that I would always take the most direct route so long as it wasn't on a motorway. Um, at this point, I was in a small town called Isakol, I think it is. Is it called? Yeah. Is it called the big lake in, in Oh, Caracol. Okay, Caracol. Yes, at the, so the far end. Yes, just yes. Yeah, the far end. So we're now sort of on the border of China or quite close yeah, to the but, border but of China. And if you go north, you've got Kazakhstan. Yes, yep. In the small town of Caracol. And I saw that there was, on the map, there was a road that went kind of into the mountains, curved away from where I wanted to go. But I saw that there was another road that came from um, the other direction that kind of curved... Um, but in any case, it looked like there was a pass in the middle there. And I, and I asked somebody, is there a road or you know, a four-wheel drive track or something across that pass? Because it didn't look very far on the map. And um, the guy said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's, there's a four-wheel drive track. You'll be fine. Um, cyclists do it all the time. I was like, oh, yeah, a bit of, bit of backcountry cycling. It's going to be great. So I cycled up this huge pass, um, got to where um, it looked as though I should turn off the main road. And all there was was a horse track. And I thought, well, give it a go. And in the end, ended up pushing and uh, carrying my bike for three days across just totally unrideable terrain. I had jardia, so um, diarrhea, nausea, horrible stomach cramps. Um, the only food I had was um, this cheap Kyrgyzstan pasta, which is more or less just compressed flour. I mean, this stuff, um, you... You put it in boiling water to, to reconstitute it, and it just goes back to flour. This goop, I couldn't eat it in, in its cooked state, so I was just crunching down on it raw. Fearing the bike, I'd carry my bike um, for a kilometre, drop it down, walk back for the bags, carry the bags to where my bike was. And, uh, yeah, that, that was probably the most adventurous thing. I remember getting back to um, civilization, to a small guest house, and looking in the mirror, and I was just gaunt. Like, I could see my, my ribs. And was it the right road in the end? I mean, the, uh, the yeah, tr- it, that yeah, was the it, one you it were was. meant to take? Yeah, because uh, um, after three days, I got to the top of the pass, which was about 4,000 uh, 4, metres high. And finally, I saw two parallel tracks in the grass, and it was like tractor tracks. Um, so I thought, oh, okay, um, I've actually found the road now. And keep going. So. And yeah. w- was it somewhere in the middle of that that you thought, "Oh, this is all just a bit too easy. I think I'll try a skateboard next." <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it wasn't that actually that, that the turning point happened. This was about day sixty of the journey. Um, ended up um, eight hundred and fifty days. Um, I was on the road, but at day sixty, that that was where um, I was standing near the top of that pass. I had um, soiled my pants 
because I had diarrhea and I was just so low. I mean, I was like, nah, this is ridiculous. Um, don't want to carry on. I'm going to go back the way I came, get on the, the first bus back to Bishkek, the capital of Kyrgyzstan, jump on a plane and go home. But this was still while my tent was all up and I thought, okay, now nah, I'm not going to make a decision until I've got everything packed away. So I packed everything away, decided that I would, in the end, decided I'd walk a kilometer um, up the pass, see what was there, and if things were getting better, that I'd carry on. Luckily, things were getting better, so I did carry on, and um, and after that, I didn't, didn't look back. And so then bring us into the skateboard part of the journey. This is completely alien for me. We have never yeah, once said yeah. to each other, let's do this on a skateboard. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the skateboard idea... Um, the idea was born in um, the capital city of Uzbekistan, Tashkent. As you know, Central Asia is a minefield for um, for bureaucracy. So I was walking around the city trying to get visas for onward travel. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to have a skateboard right now just to zip around town to make things more efficient? And from there, I started thinking, I wonder if you can travel by skateboard. And I did a little Google search and saw that a, a British guy had skateboarded. Well, no, at that very time was skateboarding across um, Australia, uh, setting a new Guinness World Record for the longest journey by skateboard. And I saw that he was fully supported. He had two vehicles carrying his gear, going ahead, trying to find hotels and that kind of thing. As somebody who had just cycled 12,000, almost 12,000 kilometers across the Eurasian continent through minus 23 degrees in eastern Turkey and over these massive high road passes, I thought, oh, this is just screaming out as a challenge because I was sure that you could do this um, solo and unsupported. And I really enjoyed that kind of travel, solo and unsupported. So I sat on that idea until I got to Switzerland. And by the time I got to Switzerland, the roads were starting to get smoother. I thought, I'm going to try skateboarding the rest of the way from Switzerland to England just to, as like a feasibility study, I guess you could call it, to see if it would be possible to skateboard with a pack on my back. And people were saying, no, nah, look, it's, it's going to be too difficult. Um, skating with anything on your back is going to be just not feasible at all. Skating in, um, on the roads in Europe, forget about it. But I decided I'd try it out anyway. And in the end, it actually it ended up being sufficiently efficient enough to be worthwhile. Um, I could still do 80 kilometers a day on the skateboard. And it was just an, an interesting twist. You know, you, you're on edge because you're on a skateboard. You know, you can you can carve if, if you want to. There's just that, like an added edge of, um, of excitement, added edge of physical exertion. It's, it's more, definitely more difficult than um, traveling by bicycle, but yeah, definitely not impossible. Was there a point where you thought, oh, I've made the wrong decision, I really wish I could have yes. my bike back now? Oh, yeah. That was in uh, Texas. Uh, oh, you got that far? I, mean, I yes. thought you might say Austria or something. No, no. Um, Europe was fantastic. Cycle lanes everywhere. I hardly even had, had to go on a main road. By the time I got to Texas, however, I mean, Texas was terrible. Um, chip seal, big, massive uh, rocks on the road, more or less. Um, that were just hell to skateboard over. Um, Texas is, is three weeks of my life that I'll never get back again. Um, <laughs> it was just absolute hell, yeah. Are you holding it against Texas? <laughs> I am, yes, yes. <laughs> and I think we were exchanging emails as well when you were in China and you found mm -hmm. that a little bit challenging. China was challenging for a different reason. China had the smoothest roads of anywhere I was. It was just fantastic. The challenge in China was um, just I was I was getting burnt out. The physical exertion... And just always being the centre of attention was extremely psychologically uh, draining. You told me about being in a restaurant and having oh, people pressed up against the windows. Oh, and cool, yeah. That was, that was terrible. Um, this is probably about 1,000 kilometres out of Shanghai, um, 1,000 kilometres to the end of the journey. I was already getting hacked off with 
these people who would slow down on their bicycles or motorcycles or even vehicles in the middle of main roads and just tailing me. I don't really know why that would get me so riled, but it did. I got really angry with people just being so curious. Um, they're all very well-meaning, but after, you know, if it's the 50th person that's done it that day, it gets, kind of gets on your nerves. Uh, I'd stopped in for lunch, and I was, I'd ordered something like um, chicken soup or noodle soup, something like that. And um, as soon as I sat down, people just started kind of emerging. Um, it's like that in China. Even if, even where there's no people, there are people. I was in this restaurant and uh, right next to the window, and people were, were looking up against the window, just staring. And I just cracked. I just walked out, left my uh, lunch half-eaten, uh, just kept skating along the road out of the town. Didn't have another town for three hours. I was ravenous, <laughs> but I was just I was done with people. <laughs> I suppose some people would say, though, I mean, if you're going to mm-hmm. go across China on a skateboard, you're asking yes, for it, really. Yes, you are. <laughs> you are. Yeah. <laughs> so you knew that, but you still... Yeah, yeah, but it just, I felt very disconnected. Perhaps in, in other countries, people are curious, but not to the extent that the Chinese tended to be curious. Quite intrusively curious, I found. And just not being able to communicate past conversations like, um, where are you going, where are you from... What are you doing? This kind of thing, yeah. Was that where you sort of felt in your heart that it was time to go home? Mm. When, when did you feel that, okay, this trip's been fun, but I need to move on? Yeah, I would say, gosh, not very far into China, maybe a thousand kilometers into China, so maybe a, a month or so into China. I was like, okay, yeah, I'm getting over this now. <laughs> what were yeah. some of the trigger points for you that brought you to that conclusion? Um, well, the fact that I was running out of money was a big thing. Even if I wanted to carry on, it would have taken something like having to work somewhere for a, a while I, I guess the the sense of discovery and the sense of exploration and curiosity had disappeared from the journey in retrospect for the majority of my journey I'd say about two years I had goals like I was going to I was going to cycle from Japan to England I, I couldn't have cared less about London Trafalgar Square London was where I was going to go but that was just a means to an end the uh, the end was meeting people, um, seeing different places, that kind of thing. The same across the US. Um, Los Angeles was my goal, and um, you know that was just a means to discover America. But in China, I found that um, every day I was just like, get me to Shanghai, get me to get me to Shanghai. That there was there was no engagement with the surrounding culture or surrounding landscape. It was just let me get this done. So I guess. A change of of how my of what my goals were to me, um, I guess, was a big um, indication that it was, yeah, maybe time that I was well, I was getting over it. <laughs> and describe for us what it was actually like once you were on that final home stretch and then getting home, because I think you had quite a difficult adjustment period. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, you see, during the journey, it comes back to the goals. Um, I always had very clear goals. Um, get me to. England, get me to Los Angeles, get me to Shanghai, um, and then finally get me from Auckland to Christchurch. There's a in the centre of Christchurch. It's called Cathedral Square. That was where I was like, okay, that's where my journey's ending. That's that get get me there and I'm done. So psychologically, there was uh, in my mind, I knew what was coming up to um, Cathedral Square. I knew that this is how far I had to go. I I could look on a map and that was where it was. But for me, there was no after Cathedral Square. In my mind, there was no vision of what happens once I get to Cathedral Square. It was just get me to Cathedral Square. And so once I got there, it was just immediate, just an immediate 
sense of what ne- what, what do I do now? Um, there's no goal. There's nothing. There's nothing there. It was just absolute emptiness. Um, what did you do? Was there someone there to meet you, or did it you wasn't, just no, no, you just it, got off your skateboard and? Well, no, I was on my bicycle because um, I, I cycled from to finish off from Auckland to Christchurch. So I got to Cathedral Square, then decided I'd cycle to my parents' place. Um, I was a day early. My my mum wasn't expecting me, so I got home. No one was there. Um, got the key out of the, the the hiding spot there and got inside and sat down on a couch and just just uh, empty. Empty, absolute, no idea how to go from there. From going from absolute, clear, concise, measurable goals to nothing was just something that uh, I'd never want to repeat again. Yeah. <laughs> and how did you deal with those issues in the in the weeks and the months that followed? You've been home for about five months. Now, yeah, right? a lot of reading, a lot of writing. The, the the biggest or one of the biggest crises for me was in terms of my faith. I was brought up as a Christian and. Uh, over the course of my journey, um, my faith really was totally torn to bits. I, I really became very disillusioned with um, the Christian faith or Christian religion and the church in particular. One of the most difficult things for me was um, saying to my parents, look, I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity anymore. I, d- I don't think that the Christian religion is, has been faithful to, to what's needed in the world, which I figured was love. Um, to help solve issues and I spent a lot of time struggling with how to I guess explain my existence and explain my my confidence in um, humanity um, in relation to my broken Christian faith so I spent a lot of time reading and was really influenced by a lot of authors that um, that shared my concerns about the Christian church and about the um, the Christian religion so to speak religion and inverted commas because I'd pretty much given up on religion but was, was still very was still very confident in the power of love and uh, just I guess getting back to the core message of the Bible that of, of being love was painful but um, I think I've come to a place of um, understanding that a lot more Is there anything when you look back on the last few months was there anything you could have done to prepare yourself better for coming home do you think that would have made the sort of transition easier or is that just an inevitable part of doing a big journey you have to work through it mm, I think it's an inevitable part um, reverse culture shock yeah very much so um, uh, basically my existence was movement my existence was um, being engaged and stim- um, stimulated every single day whether I wanted it or, wanted it or not and, and then being on my own and being able to just disconnect and move away from people. Going from multi-vistas to a, a common, like a, a wallpaper that I see every day, like waking up in the same room, the same bed, same um, bedspread, coming from from every day where you get just bombarded with multi-thoughts, multi-ideas on life, people just, um, all these different ways of thinking, and then you come to a common thought. So you've got multi-thoughts to a common thought, going from being just, Solitary, um, going from one to to many. You know, you you you're always in in uh, contact with the same people every day. It was a huge shock, yeah, culture shock. Do you think it was worth it to do the trip in the end? Maybe it would have been easier if you hadn't done it. Then you wouldn't have had oh, to I've, suffer all the pain. Yeah, <laughs> I've I have. Um, you could have been blissfully ignorant of yes, the whole experience. <laughs> yeah, I, I have thought about that. I thought in a way, it's it's better not to travel because you don't have to go through the kind of pain that that uh, that you inevitably feel. But uh, it was worthwhile. 
definitely. I mean, the, the things I learned and the and the the broader mindset that that I've gained through this experience um, is invaluable. What are some of those things in a few years when you've you know really recovered mm-hmm. from <laughs> culture shock of getting home and yeah. so on? What are the little bits of Rob that will still be there that wouldn't have been there had you not taken the trip? I think just being aware that my way of life is not universal. My way of thinking is not universal. For example, I, I'm still a Christian, believe it or not, and uh, I still I still believe strongly and have a lot of confidence in um, in the in the big story of of the Bible. And but I guess the place that I've come to, and I think in many years to come as well, is that many people choose to believe in some kind of a story. And the, the fact is that us humans will never actually know exactly how the world works or how it should work or you know, we'll always have different ideas about how things work and, and people have equally valid ideas about how things should be and it's not a matter of us and them or right and wrong it's about let's just work together listen to each other get in dialogue with each other and find what common areas we have and uh, and try to find truth within those so yeah I, I guess just being open minded and, and, and accepting that um, that just because I choose to believe in a certain story doesn't mean that another person's story is is wrong or that it's it's uh it's not worth considering you know and what message or what advice would you pass on if there are some potential adventurers out there thinking oh gee i i really envisioned this big trip what what would you tell them someone just starting out in the Mm. planning stages if i had known this when i when i began or there's a, a great book um into the wild about uh, Chris McCandless, I think his name is, an American college graduate who decides that he'll go off um, on his own into the Alaskan wilderness, and uh, he ends up, very long story short, ends up dying in the wilderness, but coming to a conclusion that he's given up on the most important thing in life, which is um, relationships. And I think for me, what I had lost sight of was that more important than goals and more important than ambition is uh, connection with other people and communication and community so I think first of all it's, it's just really important to involve other people in in your adventure um, an adventure shared is an adventure worthwhile definitely for me um, my blog was even though it was like an impersonal kind of detached community if you like um, it was a community nonetheless and uh, I think that really was an important part of my journey so I guess the advice would be do it. If you've got a spark of an idea of an adventure you want to do, yeah, think about um, the timing. If, it, if the timing's good, then go and do it. Just plan it, uh, dream it, plan it, do it. But uh, make sure to involve other people in it as well. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, thank you.